Welcome to Earth News Interviews, the podcast where we sit down with the experts and discuss the biggest questions and discoveries in the Earth Sciences today. Earth News Interviews is brought to you by the Department of Earth Sciences at U of T. Hello and welcome to another episode of Earth News Interviews. My name is Dean. Joining me today is my co-host, Winnie. Hello. And our guest today is Andre Swidinski, U of T alumni who joined our department in July 2021, and he is now the Associate Professor and Tech Chair in Exploration Geophysics. Hello, Andre. Thanks for joining us. Hi. Hi. It's great to be here. So you're a, a geophysicist by training. What got you interested in the earth sciences or what, what kind of brought you down to this path of studying geophysics specifically? Well, it's been, uh, it's been sort of an interesting, slow um, discovery of the earth sciences, I guess, over my, uh, over my scientific and academic career. Um, I'm originally from Guelph and I did my undergraduate at the University of Guelph in theoretical physics. So I really, I really initially thought I was just going to be a pure physicist. And um, once I finished my undergraduate degree, I, I applied to the University of Toronto, which was the one and only place I applied to because I just really wanted to come to Toronto, big school, big, big city, all that kind of thing, into the master's program. And you didn't have to declare a specialization of any sort. So you just got into the physics program. And at the time, I was thinking of things like black holes and, and uh, string theory and all that kind of thing kind of crazy stuff. And I discovered that there was a geophysics unit within the physics department. And I thought this was interesting. So I uh, started to discuss with a few people and then learned that this was a pretty practical subject and a pretty useful one. So I kind of gradually got weaned into the, in, into the, the geosciences, let's say, through being a geophysicist within a physics department. And I spent my master's and PhD in um, at U of T in the physics department and mainly focused on, on kind of the physical aspects of, of geophysics, the, the physics sides of things. And then I did a postdoc, I spent two years in Germany and it was at a marine research institute called Geomar. So it's kind of a, a marine geology institute. And I've got kind of more involved into the worlds of really, really outright earth science and, and geology and geosciences. And then I spent eight years at the Colorado School of Mines in a geophysics department. And that, because it was a geophysics department, it was more balanced between the geo and the physics compared to, let's say, what we were sort of learning and, and seeing as when I, was a, when I was a graduate student at U of T. So over the years, I started to become more and more on the geo side. And I shouldn't say less and less on the physics side, but I've just over the years become more balanced between the geo and the physics. And now that I'm here in the earth science department, it's really cool because I wander around and I go into uh, various storerooms and find all kinds of cool rocks and geological maps. And I start to realize like this stuff is really neat. I love this kind of thing. Yeah, we're glad to have you back here joining us in the earth science department. So when and how did you decide you wanted to pursue academic research to add on to your previous intro? I think it was just the desire to keep on learning. I mean, when I was... Uh, when, when, when I was an undergrad, I, just, I liked being in university. I liked, I liked learning stuff as, a, as an undergraduate student. And I, not that we should ever stop learning, but I, I didn't want to directly stop. And so I wanted to continue being a student going to graduate school. So it was just a logical thing for me. It wasn't, I don't think it ever crossed my mind when I was finishing my undergrad to go 
to start to, to, to work, so to speak, because I just wanted to continue to study and just learn more. And just one thing follows from the next from that, because, you know, a master's in it is interesting. You learn, because I was learning about this new world of geophysics at the time. And, and, you know, I wanted to learn more about that. So I became, you know, joined the doctoral program and learned more. And the opportunities throughout my, I guess, my, my early career of, of getting industry positions did come up. And I'm sure you learn much in those positions, but I was always really drawn to the academic side of things. A postdoc was just the obvious thing to do after doing um, graduate school because you do research and you learn yet more. And then a faculty position was yet the more obvious thing to do because it's just so fun to learn stuff, new things all the time. Cool. So today we're going to look at a paper titled Application of Deep Penetrating Geophysical Methods to Mineral Exploration examples from Western Australia. It was published in 2018, and the paper showcases two case studies of applications of magnetotellurics and seismic methods, which are both deep penetrating methods for surveying. So the paper opens up on the concept of mineral systems. Can you tell us a little bit about what a mineral system is, how they're defined, and if there's been any recent developments yeah. Um, first of all, I chose this paper for a few reasons. First of all, because I, I was aware of it and, and kind of related papers by this group of authors who are all from Australia. And so I always wanted to read it. And this was a good opportunity to do that. It's also sort of timely in that the Earth Science Department is currently searching for a faculty position in mineral systems. So I thought it was a relevant thing to to sort of bring to this podcast I'm going to read off the definition to get it as exact as possible because it's the first line of this paper. And from 1994, there's a definition of a mineral system as all geologic factors that control the generation and preservation of mineral deposits. So that's kind of, I guess, the kernel of when people started to think on this much broader scale of what are the footprints of a, an actual finite mineral deposit, which one would explore for in mine. And this concept has really taken off over the last, well, what would that be now, uh, like 25 years or so, because there, there's been a lot of, of, of activity in terms of just understanding, I guess, the footprints of mineral camps, mineral deposits, and um, obviously not just, not just constrained to geophysics. This paper is kind of focused on the geophysics in, in particular, but just the general understanding of what needs to happen in the earth for mineral deposits to form. So on that note, has this development of the concept of mineral physics shifted how people view the surveying of a regional geology and geophysics stuff? Yeah, I mean, I think what it really has done is it's, it's helped target exploration campaigns in that, I guess, previous to this idea, explorers would have a general idea of where they should be looking and where they shouldn't be looking based off of, I guess, history of what worked in the past and what, what deposits have been found in the nearby area. But with the mineral systems perspective, one can say, well, here's a greenfields location, somewhere, somewhere that people haven't really explored much, but there is some regional data here to suggest that the right ingredients are in place for, for deposits to be formed. So I think, um, yeah, this is, this is quite influential in the sense that 
places that might have have just never been considered as as prospective regions and i mean regions with a big r not not a tiny little postage stamp but these regions are now perhaps on the table for further exploration based off of the mineral systems analysis that's really cool so the paper we're looking at today focuses on deep penetrating masses and i thought just as a primer for our audience who's not too familiar with geophysics could you tell us a bit about other more conventional or traditional geophysical methods and their typical depths, which assume if they're not deep penetrating, they have a shallower depth? Yeah. So, so these two particular geophysical methods that have been highlighted in this paper, there's actually three because the seismic is kind of broken up into two sub-methods. They, I would say, of almost all the exploration geophysical techniques are the they look the deepest. So just to just to put that on up, out there, and we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll revisit that. But there have been a number of different geophysical methods used for mineral exploration in the in the past, which are in some cases related to just gravity fields of the Earth. So gravity surveying related to just the magnetic fields of the Earth. So magnetic surveying, electric fields, either naturally or artificially produced, electromagnetic fields, naturally or artificially produced. And a lot of these methods, particularly the electromagnetic ones that are, have, I guess, artificially produced signals. So you have a big antenna and you fly it around in an aircraft. They look maybe a few hundred meters into the subsurface. So they're, at least in their infancy, were developed for for deposit scale exploration. I'd like to find anomalies in my geophysical data that suggest I should drill right here. And that's likewise true for electrical methods and things like induced polarization. Gravity and magnetic methods, one could argue, are also deep penetrating in the sense that they can see very broadly into the earth, but they're often also used at a smaller scale for kind of more of an exploration, a, a more on a deposit scale exploration campaign. So moving on to the, the methods discussed, the two or maybe three methods, we have magnetotellurics, MT, and passive seismic. Which of these methods has been developed first or, or kind of refined first, maybe? And could you kind of, in a, in a simplified way, describe how they work? Yeah, I mean, I'll start with magnetotellurics. My focus is in electromagnetic methods, and magnetotellurics is a category of electromagnetic methods. So I do a lot of this. In principle, what MT does is you measure naturally varying electric and magnetic fields that are generated by ionospheric effects, by solar effects. And those fields, the electric and magnetic fields, when combined appropriately, actually are sensitive to subsurface electrical resistivity. So the electrical resistivity of rocks. And of course, the electrical resistivity of rocks varies depending on what type of rock you're looking at. It also varies on what the fluid contents of those rocks are. It varies on the temperatures of those rocks, on, I guess, the mineral content in some cases of those rocks as well. So... So having a method like magnetotellurics or any electromagnetic method, just, just to say, kind of gives you insight into the three-dimensional distribution of electrical resistivity, which then is a proxy of different types of geology and geological phenomena. Because you ask about the history, and because you're asking, I suppose, about what, what's come first, 
when you read books about MT, you'll read things that date back to about the 1950s. And there were developments both in France and in the Soviet Union of where or how to appropriately use naturally occurring fields. And so I would, I would say, you know, this MT technique dates back to about the 1950s. Sometimes people kind of argue about it. And then one time I saw like it's talk or some, maybe a bulletin post where someone said, you know what, actually in Japan, someone did this like 1895 or something, something like there's, there's a really kind of, you know, I guess an interesting scientific history to this, but really it was done and used fully by the 1950s or so. And that's, that's when real developments and real surveys started to be done about seismic. So just to be clear here, because the paper's title comes across as just seismic, but they've differentiated it actually within the paper to active seismic and passive seismic. So, so I'll address the active seismic first, because I think I can speak more intelligently about it. Active seismic methods have been around we, since about the 1920s, and they were primarily used for hydrocarbon exploration because when you, when you do a seismic survey, a, an active seismic survey, to be clear, you energize the ground by shaking the ground, either with dynamite or if it's in the, in the ocean with, with air guns, or nowadays people use things called vibersized trucks, which are like these big trucks, like they look the size of garbage trucks and they bounce up and down and you have 20 of them in the desert somewhere <laughs> in Saudi Arabia. Wow. And you, you energize the earth this way and you look at the way, the way the waves propagate in the earth and the way that they reflect off of various lithological contrasts, like a sand to a shale or, or, or you know, a sedimentary basement to the, a basin to the basement contact. And it, they're very, very powerful techniques or the seismic, the active seismic method is very powerful because it allows you to delineate structure quite effectively because everywhere there's a reflection, if you have faults, if you have non-layered earth, because there's been, you know, I guess deposition, and then there's been all this sort of deformation afterwards, you can see all these interfaces very well. So seismic has been the workhorse of the oil and gas industry for, well, basically 100 years now. And these days, if you were an oil company, you would never drill wells if you didn't have seismic data, but at least in most cases, especially offshore, because you would need to know exactly where the structures were, where the anticlines were, where the faults were in order to target the drilling. So what makes this interesting in this paper is that seismic isn't kind of your immediate go-to method for mineral exploration. Now, that's not to say people don't do it. A lot of people over the years have tried it, but this is different because they're trying to, they're trying to image very deeply with seismic as opposed to kind of, I guess, deposit scale imaging. So it's almost like, I guess, if you were in basin analysis in an, in an oil and gas company, you would have these really broad scale seismic surveys to understand the petroleum system. And this is kind of the same thing. It's a, this is a very broad scale active seismic survey to understand the mineral system in Western Australia. And why hasn't the active been typically used for, for that kind of survey? You mean in the mineral exploration world? Correct. A, a number of reasons. One of which is it's very expensive to do because when you need to have sources in the field, which are actually, and I'm talking about like these trucks that vibrate the ground or when you, when you just basically drill holes and you put dynamite down the holes for, to, to make a seismic source, 
I mean, this costs a lot of money to do it. And I suppose the value add has always been questioned in a way. Is it really worth the money? Because in the oil industry, this method is like the main way to identify drill targets. But in mineral exploration, it's not quite clear about the images, if the images that you get from the seismic survey are going to be really that helpful to targeting mineral deposits. So it's so it's kind of like, is it worth spending all this money for something which is sort of questionable? Now, the, the other thing is, and this is this is the case also in this paper too, because they kind of get at it a bit. But if you can picture a lot of places where you you might go looking for mineral deposits, I mean, think of Northern Ontario or something, there's not a lot of access. So you need to get a lot of equipment into an area and it's really challenging to do that. So if, if you're in Saudi Arabia or if you're in West Texas, you know, it's not that difficult to get a lot of I guess, acreage to get a lot of equipment out and to do a large seismic survey. But it's, it's extremely challenging when you're dealing with a lot of places in the world where we look for mineral deposits. So, so I think th there's, there's a lot of reasons, the point is. But there's a lot of interest, too, in seismic methods. So I'll just say one last thing, because I've talked about active methods. And in this paper, they also discuss passive seismic methods. And all I'll really say about this, if you think of earthquake seismology, and people trying to just, I guess, understand the nature of the solid earth, the entire, I guess, global picture of the earth. That's how it's been done, right? From an earthquake going off and measurement of seismic waves all around the earth. And that you could argue is basically passive seismic because you're not actually making the source signal yourself. It's nature's doing it for you. And there's a lot of different variations of passive seismic methods of exactly what the signals are. I mean, people do this for engineering sometimes when they just use like vehicle vibrations. It's, it's not natural, but you're not actually, as a geophysicist, making that vibration. It's just, it happens to be there and you use it. So that would be considered passive seismic. But the, the, the reason it's appealing, I'll say, is that it's a lot lower cost because now you're just listening. You're not actually energizing the ground actively and having to bring all this equipment to actually vibrate the ground. So that, that's why there's sort of that distinction made in this paper between active and passive seismic methods. Yeah, I just wanted to touch back on the use of seismic methods in mineral exploration a bit. Just mm -hmm. from my undergrad studies, seems like that the places you would be looking for oil and gas is just a lot of layers of sedimentary rocks. And that's what seismics are really good at picking up at. Mm -hmm. But a lot of like metal deposits you're looking at, it doesn't necessarily have that layered kind of geology. Yep. So seismic really wouldn't be giving you as valuable insight into those if you just have, I don't know, a giant blob of granite. <laughs> yeah. And that's actually mm -hmm. very insightful to, to yeah. say that because, I mean, and I actually have debated, debated this with my colleagues many times. In some ways, the way that seismic is actually applied developed because they were looking for layered sedimentary they were working in layered sedimentary environments. So it's actually not immediately apparent if seismic is actually not appropriate in places where you don't have these sedimentary environments. It's just that the way that it's been done by 98% of the exploration community has been designed specifically towards like a sedimentary imaging, if you will. So the, yeah, the challenges are pretty big. I mean, if you think of like, a, let's say we're trying to look at a VMS deposit or something. I mean, it's everything's, you know, steeply dipping. There's, there's really large, I guess, 
you know, contrasts and densities and velocities of the rocks. And it's right. just different. So, so that doesn't necessarily mean it's not going to work. It just, I think, I guess the exploration seismic community has to sort of rethink it. And people do that. People have been, but it's just, uh, it needs massive financial support, like the 100 years of the oil industry supporting the development of seismic technology. So moving on to, I guess, the next step point, we are developing these deep penetrating techniques almost to reach down to the structure and composition of the mantle depths. Mm -hmm. And why do we even care to know about what's happening that deep down in the context of exploration? Like, are you actually going to be able to mine that deep? No, that's that's not the intention at all to actually target deposits down there. It's that, let's just call it the plumbing system. I mean, that mm-hmm. the reason that the deposit is somewhere at a mineable depth of the surface, like, you know, up to like, a you know, two or three kilometers max, I suppose, at, 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 that's, that's very deep. <laughs> but that kind of thing, there's a reason those deposits are there. I mean, there's the reason, there's a reason that the gold has got where it is through faults, uh, through fluid flow. But there's got to be a source of it somewhere. And so looking down into the mantle, and if you, some of the images in this, in this paper, they're, they're showing kind of like mantle-derived fluids and sources and magma, et cetera, moving around. And that at some point in geological history has been responsible for, I guess, mobilizing a large amount of I guess, of fluids carrying metals in them and then eventually getting them up through, maybe even creating those faults and then pushing those fluids up through those faults. So this is all about understanding the, the, the big picture overall plumbing system. It's not for trying to find deposits down at that depth. So are there any other things to consider aside from maybe cost or, or location or like the terrain when deciding between using an active or a passive system or... Or survey. Yeah, I mean, you, I guess, I guess the punchline or the bottom line would be you get what you pay for. So if you do an active geophysical survey, it's not even seismic. I mean, just just to kind of go back to magnetotellurics, that would be considered a passive electromagnetic method because you're using nature's electromagnetic fields and the variations of those fields to image the Earth. So that's a passive electromagnetic method. So often when I introduce geophysics to students, I you know you can subcategorize in lots of ways. Like I teach a class that's non-seismic methods, right? You know, so some people categorize seismic versus non-seismic, which is arguably <laughs> not the best thing to do, but um, <laughs> but but that's very common to do. <laughs> that happens all the time. But another classification that one can make, which I think is a much better one, is you can classify active versus passive methods. And I like, this is usually one of the early things I do in a class. I'm not sure if I did it with my ESS 452 class this year, but is to say, well, a passive method is going to be cheaper. I mean, fundamentally, it's cheaper because you have less stuff because you're using nature's signals and you're just listening and that's it. But again, you get what you pay for because now, if nature doesn't feel like giving you something good or something useful, then <laughs> you don't get the imaging that you would like. So be, by being able to control the way that you energize the earth, either by shaking the ground at certain points or by you know, having a, a, an electromagnetic antenna, which is a transmitting antenna that you're able to focus electromagnetic fields into the earth in a certain way, you're only going to get what nature gives you, I guess, when it comes to a passive method. But with an active method, you pay more but you're going to get more information out of, out of that type of survey. 
And I'm guessing with passive messes, there's going to be a bit more guessing involved, guessing per se, because with active, you know what's your source and you know what you what the signal you got out of it. You just have to know what happened in between. But I'm yeah. guessing with passive methods, sometimes you would also have to guess what it originally came from, or or this just like an additional degree of guessing. Yes and no. There are tricks around avoiding that guessing, and I guess, I guess, simply put, normally you want to measure more than one thing at a time, and if you divide one thing by the other thing that you don't know, often you kind of remove out the thing you don't know. So in magnetotellurics, mm. I'll just use that as an example. Um, we measure both the electric and the magnetic fields on the Earth's surface, and you always divide the electric field by the magnetic field. I mean, that's the fundamental development. I mean, when you look back in the 1950s, whatever, Soviet Union, France, where this was coming from, it was the re recognition that if you, if you measure the naturally occurring electric field and the naturally occurring magnetic field, and you don't actually know what nature was doing at that time, by doing that division, by dividing one by the other, you sort of remove out that uncertainty about what the source was doing. So there's always, well, I shouldn't say always, but there's, there are often tricks to kind of working around that. That's really reassuring to know that scientists out there are not doing purely guessing works. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, no, I'm no, like no. simultaneously offending all of the geophysicists listening. Mm -hmm. So in my understanding, Western Australia is a very heavily explored area previously. There's currently a lot of mining and exploration going on. In terms of the study area of the paper we're talking about today, what new conclusions did the authors make using the penetrating methods? Well, there's a particular image in here. I mean, there's there's a number of them, but I'll, I'll point to, to one. I mean, I know people listening to this podcast probably won't have this in front of them, but figure six, this is an electrical resistivity image in the sub, of the subsurface derived from an MT survey, a line across, which is sort of crossing various, I guess, belts and, and regions within Western Australia. And, you know, for, for you looking at it, and I guess for listeners who, who may look at it, you see all these almost like fingers coming up from like a deep zone. And what, and I think there's, there's a lot of work that still has to be done, but what this perhaps suggests is that these are almost like conduits where, kind of back to your, your question about the mantle, these are conduits where mantle-derived fluids may have been, been able to flow upwards and then create mineralization, maybe at an economic depth, maybe not at an economic depth, because it all depends on you know, preservation, all, all that kind of stuff, burial and exhumation. But what I might learn from this, if I was an explorationist, was, okay, let me look where these fingers are going up. And if I'm going to have to allocate my finite resources towards an exploration campaign, I may target one of the tips of those fingers, that area, because those are still already very large areas. This is an enormous survey. So this is the, that's the magnetotellurics. They actually show some gravity and magnetics too. They're just sort of, sort of showing some correspondence between existing faults that are kind of observed on surface, some discontinuities you're, that you can see in the gravity magnetics, which indicate faults as well, and then what these magnetotelluric fingers are showing. So although this, they're really emphasizing the, the, the MT and seismic, I should just point out that there's also magnetics and gravity in this paper as well as kind of like a, another um, perspective. But the other thing, they, they actually look at two areas in this paper. So in one case, they're looking at like 
basically extremely the southern part of of Western Australia. It's the Yilgar and Craton, where there's a lot of known gold deposits, and there's this is these fingers again. Um, some of those fingers touch regions where those existing gold deposits are. And so it makes you wonder, okay, well, if I looked at where the other fingers were, maybe I'll find some gold or, or mineralization. Now, in the for the seismic work, they're actually in a different area. They're actually north of that. So they're actually between the Yilgarn and Kilbara Cratons on in Western Australia. And that's a more underexplored area. And it's a it's a slightly younger region, still old, but it's 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 younger than than the Yilgarn. And in this case, they're trying to understand the broad scale lithospheric structure to see if maybe there exists under some of the thrusting during the orogeny that that's happened. And this region, as I've said, is much less explored. So I don't think if I was an exploration company, I would know what to do with it immediately. It's not quite like the Yilgarn MT one, because that's a little bit clearer. This one is something more like, can seismic do anything for us in this in this situation? And it appears like it can, because they've been able to revise some lithospheric models of, of I guess, just various blocks. And they've there's a figure in here, I believe it's just trying to pull it up. It's figure 12, where they've got it kind of like an existing kind of position of the, of the I guess, the southern limit of the Pilbara Craton. And then they've revised where that is because it's all undercover. So... So it's a it's a it's just a it's an update, I suppose, of the lithospheric model in that region. But what that leads to, I'm not sure yet. Regardless, it's still really exciting to see we have these new developments in the field that allow us to see these cool things, and hopefully, in the future, we'll be able to utilize this information in a very effective way towards whether it's exploration or or even just for our curiosity. Who doesn't want to know what's down there? Yeah, geophysics is such a creative area. It's just we take a JGA three hundred five in our in like second oh, yeah. year, third year class, and it just really just kind of like this explosion of all these very different kinds of ways that you can survey. And you also there's a there's a field course as well that people can take. Yes, but are, are there any other developing surveying innovations in geophysics that maybe you're excited about, or maybe we're we're kind of on the cusp of with new technologies? Yeah, I mean, there's always something, well, I shouldn't say always, but there's there are always technological innovations, usually by, say, people looking to make money. So sometimes you're not sure if they're actually really going to be good or not. But I'll tell you some things which I think are very promising. W- one is just using drones, more unmanned or UAVs for more just lower cost operations to cover larger areas. And, you know, people for actually quite a while now, I think I was even a grad student at U of T, have been talking about using drones for geophysical acquisition. And it, it may just be that now is the time because now things are just drones. If you go to Costco and you buy a drone and you put a little geophysical sensor on it, if it's if it can carry it, if it's if it's um, if, if the sensor is light enough, that is right. And and I mean, you know, 10, 15 years ago, when people were talking about this initially, that wasn't as easy to do. So so I, I think that's that's one thing. And I, I say that with a bit of a caveat because there are drone companies out there, and some people seem to be, do it better than others. Let's just say. But that's that's going to probably in the in the future become a really big thing, especially once it's possible to fly multiple 
swarms of drones at once. And you may have seen things like when people do these light shows sometimes, I only saw this recently, where they've got these tiny, like Intel has these tiny little drones and they have like a thousand of them in the sky and they they, they can like, you know, they or, they organize themselves to make like a picture of Santa Claus or something like that in the sky for, for Christmas lights. And if you haven't seen it, it's totally crazy. But they're all communicating with each other and they're all, I guess they, they're all sort of thinking, I guess, if you will. So so, so that, that would bring me to things like artificial intelligence and machine learning, because once we start to have lots of data, lots of sensors, lots of instruments, then data science and machine learning starts to become kind of extremely important to kind of doing something with this data. The only other thing I'll mention, and this is not really now machine learning or drones, something else, which I'm not directly involved in, but I think it's just really cool, is distributed acoustic sensing. It's called DAS. And there was actually... I think it was actually our Thursday seminar last week. There was a speaker talking about DAS, which is basically making the equivalent of a seismic measurement using fiber optic cables. Because when there is deformation in the ground, it actually affects the transmission of light through these cables. And that, if you interrogate, so to speak, this fiber optic cable and you see how much light's getting through and what, like, just the effects on the light, you can actually make equivalent of a seismic measurement this way the vibration of the ground wow this isn't new 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 like last last month or something this is this idea has been around for probably over 10 years maybe more but now it's becoming just kind of quite like it's 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 actually financially achievable that you can go out and buy a big pile of fiber optic cable you can buy an interrogator if you will and lay it out the speaker last week mentioned something about dark fiber which is again really neat because Everyone, you know, TELUS and Roger and all those guys around here, they have fiber everywhere. And so if you can actually tap into those things, you can measure ground vibrations and you don't have to, you don't have to go bury that fiber. I mean, it's already there in the ground for you. So again, that's not yesterday's innovation, but it's also not, you know, 20 year ago innovation either. It's perhaps the last five years, you know, you'll hear people talk more and more about, can I make seismic measurements with dark fiber? The problem of course is, that has to be there. And if you're going to be looking in the middle of Nevada and the desert for something like a geothermal field or something, there's probably no fibers down there, but that's... But by last year's speaker, you're referring to uh, the department seminar uh, speaker. So last last week. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The, the, the department seminar last week on Thursday, okay. they were talking about DAS on the, on the ocean floor, because of course there's all this telecommunication on the ocean floor and there's a bunch of fiber communications. So you can measure seafloor deformation that way. All right. So you're teaching a geophysics class. Is it ESS 452? Yeah, slash 1452. Oh, okay. Could you tell us a little bit about the class? And then also, what generally do geophysics students need to learn and prepare for for something like going into a geophysics specialist? Which, I mean, U of T actually has a a geophysics specialist program. It's one of the few Mm -hmm. universities in Canada that does. What what kind of what kind of stuff should a a student focus on if they are interested in going to something like that or and taking your class? So so my class of four fifty two slash fourteen fifty two it's it's I think it's officially titled geophysical imaging with non seismic methods or something like that. Many many classes sort of have a title like that around the world. So basically, it focuses on all the geophysical methods that are not seismic. So gravity methods, magnetic methods electrical methods, electromagnetic methods, which are sort of the kind of standard go-to measurements of, uh, or, or, or I guess surveys that you would do if, if you were 
often looking for mineral deposits. So it's, it's not a course specifically of geophysics for mineral exploration, because these non-seismic methods can be used for a lot of things. But, you know, in, these are very useful tools in mineral exploration. So that's sort of the, sort of the premise of the course. What I would say in terms of preparation is math and physics are always important in geophysics and, and, you know, understanding things like differential equations, vector calculus, linear algebra to some extent, although maybe not in my class so much, just classical physics. So understanding gravity fields and magnetic fields and electromagnetic fields, just from a classical physics perspective, those are very helpful for people taking my class because we sort of build off of those and we're applying either those mathematical concepts and of course the physics concepts the classical physics concepts so if a student has a very combined interest in earth science and physics i'd mm -hmm. say geophysics is a very good option for them sounds like yes absolutely yes okay so as we wrap up this paper discussion i want to hit you with a really hard-hitting question if you could solve one scientific mystery that really interests you, whether it's in the earth sciences, geophysics, or whatever field, what mystery would you like the answer to? Oh, yoy. Um, <laughs> I mean, it would actually, I was just thinking about this yesterday. I'd like to know why people lose their hair because I don't have any anymore. And <laughs> I'd like to know why, why it comes, like, how do you get it back without basically, you know, poisoning your body with some drug that doesn't, <laughs> that gets your hair back but kills you. <laughs> So, yeah, I don't know. I was just thinking about it the other day. <laughs> Sounds yeah. good. I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that. But yeah, it was a delight having you on our podcast, Andrew, today. Great. Well, it was, this was tons of fun. Yeah, thanks so much for inviting me to do this. Let's do an ending quote for this episode, too, because we just had a really big scientist pass just this last month, uh, E.O. Wilson, American biologist, known as the father of biodiversity, specialized in myrmecology, which is the study of ants. Um, here's, a, here's a quote from E.O. Wilson. You are capable of more than you know. Choose a goal that seems right for you and strive to be the best. However hard the path, aim high, behave honorably, prepare to be alone at times and to endure failure. Persist. The world needs all that you can give. Pretty good. I really like E.O. Wilson. I'm an Very ant cool. guy, though, too. I like it. I really love ants. So yeah, thank you again, Andre, and thank you to our listeners. Thank you. Tune in next time for a brand new episode of Earth News Interviews. Until then, leave no stone unturned. Earth News Interviews is brought to you by the Department of Earth Sciences at U of T. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the university. 